Amen. Please remain standing and hear the word of our God as we continue uh, through the gospel of John, and we'll be finishing chapter 6 now this morning. I'll be reading from chapter 6, verses 60 through 71. These are the words of God. Therefore, many of his disciples, when they heard this, said, this is a hard saying. Who can understand it? When Jesus knew in himself that his disciples complained about this, he said to them, does this offend you? What then, if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? It is the Spirit who gives life. The flesh profits nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. For Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And he said, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. From, the, from that time... Many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. And Jesus said to the twelve, Do you also want to go away? But Simon Peter answered him, Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. Also we have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. Jesus answered them, Did I not choose you, the twelve? And one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Thus far, the reading of God's word, let's ask his blessing upon it now. Our God and Father, as we open your word, we ask again for that special work of your spirit to open our hearts and minds, that we might believe and know the things of the kingdom, that we might draw near to you and be drawn near by you in deep fellowship and love. For we ask it in Jesus' name, amen. Amen. Please be seated. Well, as we've mentioned, this is a strange chapter in terms of watching the um, thousands of followers of Jesus dwindle down lower and lower, smaller and smaller as he preaches his gospel. Jesus has been winnowing a following of thousands down to just many disciples in the previous section, and now finally, um, in the end here, down to just the 12. He's not interested in being made king so that he can be our bread god. That's what we found out. I'm not interested uh, in you coming to me just for the stuff that I give, but for who I am. But in our flesh, the only reason that we turn to Jesus in our flesh is for the stuff that he gives. In our old nature, we will not turn to Jesus because of who he is and what he claims. We just will not do so. Only by means of the Spirit will our hearts be pierced by his word so that we come to believe, and as Jesus reiterates here in verse 65, no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And look back just to remind yourself at verse 39, where where he says, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. Or again, verse 44, no one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. We've talked about these verses. We've talked about this issue of the sovereignty of God in election, the sovereignty of God in changing hearts, and and how that sounds so hard and so difficult to us, and yet it is actually actually our opportunity to enjoy the freedom of God having his way with us. (laughs) That's what we need. We need the freedom of God to have his way with us because left to ourselves in our flesh, in our unbelief, in our rebellion, we are just like our father, Adam, and we will choose our own way. We will choose to fall away, to stay away, to run away from God. 
But such talk is scandalous, and it turns people off. But the word of God was the means, that word of God, this same offensive, strong word of God, was the means by which the universe was brought out of nothing, because God said it. And it is at the word of God that we are raised from spiritual nothingness, deadness, and brought to eternal life. It is by the word and spirit that we are transformed and brought to a place where we can believe on the Lord Jesus, turn to him, and call on him. And those offensive words are known as the scandal of the cross, the ascension of the Son of Man. And it's all illuminated through the work of the Spirit that these offensive words are the glorious gospel of our Lord Jesus Christ. And that's what Jesus has been making clear through his acts, feeding the 5,000, refusing to be um, brought in and made forced to become king instead of withdrawing away from a great following, uh, uh, the same number as a legion, a Roman legion, ready to go and take a city. But he walks away from them. He withdraws himself. And then, um, uh, and then having uh, gone back to Capernaum, he ends up in, a, in the synagogue there where they know who he is. He's the, we know your mom. We know your dad. Well, who do you think you are? And he gives these hard and offensive words. And then finally, it, it falls down here even to the 12. Verse 60 through 62, first of all, we see these offensive, hard words again. It's not so much that Jesus' words are hard to understand. It says here uh, in, in verse 60, um, Jesus, uh, in verse 61, Jesus, understanding uh, what they were saying within themselves, says, does this offend you? Um, they, he, what he did not hear, but he knew they were saying, is in verse 60, this is a hard saying, they say. Who can understand it? And it's not hard in, in, in the sense of, as hard to understand. Really, the Greek word um, there means it's hard to tolerate, it's hard to swallow. It's not that the teaching is that difficult to apprehend. It, it's that it's, it, it's that difficult to, in fact, put up with, submit to. I, I'm not sure I want a God like that, in other words. The doctrine of Christ and the doctrine from Christ. This is not just the doctrine of Christ that are put out by man, but this is Jesus himself. Um, oftentimes people will say that uh, Jesus uh, taught a particular kind of theology, and then Paul kind of went and twisted it and made it really different, which is not true at all. The, the doctrine of Christ, which, which Paul proclaims, is the outworking of these words of Jesus himself. The doctrine of Christ is also the doctrine that comes from Christ, and it is offensive to natural man. He implies that he's greater than Moses and greater than the bread that Moses provided. In verse 30 and then 50, 48 through 51. Look back at verse 48 through 51 again. Jesus says, I am the bread of life. Your fathers ate the manna in the wilderness, that manna that you are so proud of from that leader that you are so proud of, Moses, and you're dead. And they all died. Verse 50, this is the bread which comes down from heaven that one may eat of it and not die. I am the living bread which came down from heaven. If anyone eats of this bread, he will live forever. And the bread that I shall give is my flesh, which I shall give for the life of the world. And remember, he goes on and then says, you must eat of my flesh, you must drink of my blood. And that is just offensive language as well. He declares his divinity in these previous passages, saying, I am, using the term of Jehovah himself, I am the bread of life. That's going to come up over and over again, these I am statements through the Gospel of John. He says eternal life only comes to those who feed on him and takes this, um, this privileged place. No one else can come to the Father unless the Father draws him, and no one can come to the Father except through me. 
Finally, he makes clear that no one will come to him unless the Father previously had determined to give them to him. Verse 37 and verse 44. No one can come to me unless the Father who sent me draws him, and I will raise him up at the last day. Well, these are the rudiments of what is known as the doctrines of grace. Man's inability in his own nature to please God and the necessity of God's electing grace in salvation. These teachings are hard to tolerate. Do not check out on them. Do not check out on these. Because what, you, what, what has to happen is that these hard words need to hit your hard heart, your stiff neck, your, and I can easily say our, our, our inclination to be our own God. To put him up on the, on the stand and judge him and his teachings by our own standards rather than to humbly submit. But when we listen, when we hear the words of the gospel, when we hear the declaration of our inability and we hear the, the declaration of God's um, grace that goes forth and grabs those who don't want him and turns them around, opens their eyes, opens their hearts, grants them new life. When we hear that by the work of the Spirit, we are changed. We're completely changed people. And we come to understand what we, what, uh, you know, the hymn everybody loves to sing, amazing grace. <laughs> amazing grace that saved a wretch like me. I, I wouldn't, I, I, not only was I lost, but I, I was happy being lost. Or if I wasn't happy being lost, the thing I was not searching for was a God who was going to control me a God who was going to take control over me, a God who was going to determine for me what I was going to believe and what I was not going to believe because I could believe it on my own, couldn't I? No, look at the human race. The human race left to itself in its selfishness, in its self-centeredness, in its determination to be its own God and to turn to this God, they, they say this God of the Bible every once in a while for some bread, for some tricks, for some nice things, but not for his sovereign care, not for his sovereign work over in and through us. So these things, these teachings are hard to tolerate. Christ knew that they were murmuring about these things in himself, verse 61. It, does, it makes it this, this case that he, it's not as though he heard them, but he knew what they were thinking. He knew what they were saying. And so here's a good practical note. Christ knows what your thoughts are right now. <laughs> Christ knows what your thoughts and your intentions and your motives. He knows your complaining spirit, even if you're doing a great job of not telling everybody else about how your life's going right now. He knows. And he knows as, as your sovereign Lord, um, your, how you feel about how he's sovereignly intervening in your life, laying out the events and, uh, and activities that are going on in your life. He knows these things. You cannot hide them from you. And, um, and so if you think about this, if you take those complaints rightly to him, rather than hiding over here and grumbling about them, if you take those complaints rightly to here, rightly to him, as the one who is in charge of all of those things, then he hears, he assures, he redirects, he teaches, teaches he comforts, and he answers in glorious ways. And if you keep, instead keep those complaints in your flesh, like keeping God at, dis, at a distance instead because he hasn't proved himself right. I, I'm not following God unless he fill in the blank. You start acting that way, 
And what happens is you, um, you become offended by him. You keep those complaints in your flesh, and they will drive you away from him. So he knows, and he asks the group, this group of disciples, does my teaching offend you? Do the results of my teaching offend you? And then he pushes. He pushes the offense even further in verse 62. What then if you should see the Son of Man ascend where he was before? And, and that's, that's even, uh, that, that lifts up the offense. Or it makes the, the offense even greater because of what a Jew would be thinking as soon as Jesus calls himself the Son of Man and refers to his ascension. Every Jew would, would have known that this was a reference to the one Daniel spoke of. In Daniel 7, verses 13 and 14, I was watching in the night visions, and behold, one, like the Son of Man, coming with the clouds of heaven. That is his ascension up into heaven. Coming up with the clouds of heaven. He came to the Ancient of Days. Oftentimes, this passage is referred to, refer to Jesus' second coming upon the earth, but that's not what Daniel's talking about at all there. Daniel is talking about the ascension of Christ up into the heavens to, the, to, to the, where the Ancient of Days is. And look what happens. And they brought him near before him. Then to him was given dominion and glory and a kingdom that all peoples, nations, and languages should serve him. His dominion is an everlasting dominion which shall not pass away, and his kingdom the one which shall not be destroyed. This is similar language that Jesus would use just before his ascension when he would turn to his disciples after his resurrection and just before his ascension, he would say, all authority has been given to me in heaven and earth. And they might have said, how do you know that? And he would say, well, didn't you read Daniel chapter 7, verse 13 and 14? Now watch this. And then he ascends. And they would see him ascending in the clouds and going to the Ancient of Days. And they would know that he is the Son of Man. Now, now go back a few chapters. Go back a couple uh, months, maybe over a year. And Jesus says to these disciples um, who are watching people go away from him, run away from him, uh, scorn him, be offended by him. And he says, now watch this. What if I ascend? What if you see me now ascend the son of man where he was before? Remember he had said he, was the, he, he had come down from heaven. What if you see me ascend heaven, uh, up into heavens? What will you think then? Will you follow me? But that ascension and, and here's the scandal even of his ascension. His ascension would only come through a scandalous work whereby they would see Jesus lifted up, ascended, lifted up on a cross. This was, as Paul writes, a stumbling block to the Jews and foolishness to the Gentiles. We don't realize how offensive it was to the Jews to have somebody called their Messiah stripped naked beat to a pulp, have a crown of thorns shoved into his brow, and then be nailed to a wooden cross and hung publicly to be displayed in all of that shame. That, that, was, that was not only a horrible thing to happen, it was a great shameful thing that would happen. And to say, I'm a follower of him, would be just a great offense, a great shame. D.A. Carson writes, Yet this stands at the very heart of the divine self-disclosure. The moment of Jesus' greatest degradation and shame is the moment of his glorification, the path of his return to the glory he had with the Father before the world began. The hour when the servant of the Lord is despised and rejected by men, when he's pierced for our transgressions and crushed for our iniquities, this moment 
is the very portal to the time when he will be raised and lifted up and highly exalted. It was through the cross, the ascension to the cross, that Christ finds his ascension up into glory. And so we have the offensive hard words of Jesus. And here we also see the offensive authority of God. Verses 63 through 65. Look at verse 63 with me. Where he says, it is the spirit who gives life. The, the flesh profits nothing. Nil. Zip. Nothing. The words that I speak to you are spirit and they are life. But there are some of you who do not believe. But Jesus knew from the beginning who they were who did not believe and who would betray him. And Jesus said, therefore, I've said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. My Father has that authority. But those offensive words are words of life, is what he's saying here in verse 63. Life from the Spirit who gives life. And so Jesus will confidently declare them. You know, I think of the, of the picture of us having a hard heart and the necessity of a knife to cut through a hard heart to break it open. And when that knife is cutting into it at hard heart to open it, the heart is not willing. It's not desirous. It fights back. It, it, it's not saying, gee, I'm really looking forward to this. And that is, the, that is the hard and offensive work of God's word with his knife, his double-edged sword, his surgical, Levitical, priestly knife cutting you open and revealing who you are, truly, honestly, who you are before God, and then dealing with it by his spirit, which gives life. These are words of life and spirit, he says. He leaves no room here for our flesh. He says, for the flesh profits nothing. There's nothing you can add to it. There's nothing you can do to open up your dead heart because it's dead. There's nothing you can do to open up a hard heart because it's your hard heart and you don't want to open up your hard heart. The last thing a hard heart wants to do is soften. But Jesus does this. Luther riffed off that phrase, the flesh profits nothing in his argument against Erasmus saying that nothing, he said, that nothing, that the flesh is nothing, that nothing is not a little something. All of us want to add just a little bit. All of us want to add just a little bit to our salvation. It's Jesus, and it's the, it's the work of Jesus, but I'm, I mean, I'm better than the guy next to me sitting here. I, I'm, I'm a little bit good, right? I mean, I, you, Jesus can see that I've at least, I've, I've, I've taken a step in that direction. I'm, I'm willing to concern myself. And, and that pat on your back is... Theologically speaking, that pat on your back is your ticket to hell. Now, God saves all kinds of people who believe that they had something to do with their salvation because it's a sin that needs to be repented of. <laughs> and God's, God's happy to, God is happy to save all of us, each and every one of us, in spite of our theology. We don't have to have our theology straight in order to be saved. Theology doesn't save. <laughs> Jesus saves. But that includes, your, that includes that theology that you hold on to that says, no, there's something about me that I add to it. There's, there's, God provides this opportunity. It's like, he, like he, he gave me this coupon, this ticket, and all I got to do is show up at the stage, and then I get, I get saved. He says, Jesus says, no, if you look at the coupon a little bit closer, you'll realize it's not a coupon. It's actually my declaration to you that you're already saved. Oh, no, but I've got to come to the stage, and I've got to make the decision, and it, it's finally up to me, right? Well, you will do that because I'm about to change your will. 
I'm about to change your heart. I'm about to open your eyes. Oh, what I want you to see, what we need to see, is that when we talk about God's utter and exhaustive sovereignty, it's not a bad thing. It's the salvation of the world. There isn't a sinner, there isn't a sinner that he cannot get to. There's not a sin that he cannot overturn, that he cannot cleanse. There's not a stiff neck, there's, there's not a hard heart that he can't raise from the dead. Our God is that sovereign. He is that strong. And he is that good. That's what Jesus is getting at. But you see what happens to the flesh? Look at the crowds. The crowds go away. Now, if I can't control you, if you're not going to be my bread, God, if you're not going to be my king according to the way I wanted to find you to be in Lord, then I'm, we're leaving. I'll go find my own God. I'll go find my own way. I'll come up with my own system. And that's what we do. That's what we do. But Luther, Luther so rightly said that nothing is not a little something. This is scandalous in our day as well, even with those who claim to be following Jesus. But if you are resting on the strength of your own righteousness, even a little, you're missing what Jesus and the whole Bible is teaching. In your flesh dwells no good thing, Romans seven eighteen. In your flesh dwells no good thing. And, and cannot get you into the kingdom of God. It is the Spirit and the Spirit alone who gives life. You see, people are happy to believe in Jesus as a model to follow or as a lofty ethical teacher. In fact, the whole, liberal, uh, the whole liberalization of, of the of Christian church, Machen talks about this in his, his book, Christianity and Liberalism. And in, in the whole move to this liberal mindset that what Jesus was was a good teacher a good ethical standard, one to be followed um, in, in becoming a better person, for good people to become better people. But the cross proclaims us all as failures when it comes to following him, obeying him, or believing him as our needed savior. The cross declares we can't do that. It is impossible for us to do that. Because if it was possible for us to do that, then Jesus didn't need to go to the cross, right? I mean, it's possible for us to just learn from him as, as a good example to us, then, then he doesn't need to go to the cross and die. And we know Jesus in the Garden of Gethsemane is considering that with the Father. Father, if there's any way this, this cup could pass for me, then let's do it. I'll, I'll just go out there and be a good example for a few more years. They can write some more books about me. Yet not my will, but yours be done, because he knew the work of atonement that had to take place on the cross for dead sinners. He had to die for us. He had to be our substitute. He had to pay the price, the eternal blood price, for our sins. The cross is offensive in that way in two ways. The first of all, the declaration that he had to die for my sins. That's how bad my sins are. And secondly, that the Savior, this Messiah, this King that I'm supposed to follow is going to be wickedly shamed and humbled, humiliated. But Jesus knew that many of those following him that day did not believe. In verse 64, and, and, he's, and um, Martin Lloyd-Jones comments about this. He says, what the gospel says to every one of us is most galling to the natural man. He goes on, he says... It seems to him to be completely insulting and humiliating because it does not come and tell us that we only have to live a good life 
and that we have only to look at the Lord Jesus Christ and see his perfect example and then go out and follow him, practicing the imitation of Christ. No, says the gospel. The message is not to look at Jesus as the great moral exemplar, the great teacher. It is to look at the gibbet, at a man with a crown of thorns upon his brow and an agonized expression on his face crying out, My God, my God, why have you forsaken me? That is what you're called to look at, Jesus Christ and him crucified. And this is why the only way that we can be brought to Christ is if the Father gives us to him. In verse 65, he says, Therefore I have said to you that no one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by my Father. And we saw this, this similar language in the previous verses. No one can come to me unless it has been granted to him by the Father. It is all gift, therefore. It is all gift. There are no works at all on our part. Um, when he says granted, that is the verb form of the word gift, didomi. It's just the noun and verb, same, same form, same word. So in Ephesians 2, we hear, For by grace you have been saved through faith, and that not of yourselves. It is the gift. It has been granted to you. You can't earn a gift. It's been given to you, not of works, lest anyone should boast. But ears that hear that with faith just explode in the hearts with praise to God for his goodness and kindness. I don't have to do anything. Jesus paid it all. All done for me. And this is a very particular election when he says that only those who have been granted by the Father, because it cannot be that the Father has given all to Christ, and then Christ would lose some. Remember verse 37 and 39, verse 37, all that the Father gives me will come to me, and the one who comes to me I will by no means cast out. He takes them all. And then verse 39, this is the will of the Father who sent me, that of all he has given me, I should lose nothing, but should raise it up at the last day. If the Father has given you to Christ, he won't lose you. If the Father has given you to Christ, he won't reject you, and he cannot and will not lose you. But what does this teaching do? Well, the, te the teaching brings this uh, result in verse 66 to those who are listening to him. From that time, many of his disciples went back and walked with him no more. We're done with you. We're done with this intolerant teaching. It's offensive. Paul put it simply. With regard to preaching the gospel, he says, To the one we are the aroma of death leading to death, and to the other the aroma of life leading to life. You preach the gospel, you share the truth, and some go, oh, that stinks. And others think it is the most glorious aroma of life that is given. That's what a strong gospel does. That's what the declaration of the Lordship of Jesus Christ does. That's what the preaching of our depravity and utter need for salvation does. That's what the promise of free grace, no works, does. That's what the promise of a son who holds those that the Father has given and holds them all the way to the end. That's what that does. To some, it stinks like a corpse. And others, it is the most glorious breath of life They've ever smelled. 
That's what the gospel does. And from that time, many left Jesus and walked with him no longer. It smelt like death. It smelt like arrogance. It smelt offensive. And Isaiah says, Jesus is the stone of stumbling and a rock of offense. As we present the gospel, it is important that we are not a cause of stumbling by our own inconsiderate words or actions. Let us never be the cause, let us never be the cause of someone not coming to Christ because of our intolerance of them or because of our offensive behavior, our, our one-upsmanship of folks. Let us all be the kind of people that would say of anyone in any situation, yet for the grace of God, yet but for the grace of God, there go I. I. I am no better. Let us never be the kind of people that are, are, are offensive because of the way that we live or speak. But know this, we will be offensive because of what the way we live and the way we speak. We will be offensive because we will, we will be the kind of people that say, we'll, we'll speak truth and we'll speak truth like we know it, like we found it. We live in a world where if you're seeking truth, that is really cool. I'm on a search for truth. I'm, I'm, I'm heading over to some guru over here. I'm going to travel the world. I'm going to get away from it all. I'm, going to, I'm searching for truth. But dare you say I have found truth? That's offensive. Not only that, if you say I have found truth, and it's the only truth. <laughs> in our day and age, I mean, I could almost put you in jail today. But that's the, that's the place that we live in. Calvin said, but it will never be possible for us to exercise such caution that the doctrine of Christ shall not be an occasion of offense to many. It was for Jesus. It was for Paul. It will be for us if we faithfully preach the gospel. F.F. Bruce wrote, what they wanted, he would not give. And what he offered, they would not receive. So now Jesus turns to the 12 in verse 67 to the 12. It's possible that it's, there are others still around. We don't know that everybody left but the 12. But he turns to the small group left and he addresses the 12. And he says to them, uh, well, uh, the, uh, the text I have uh, translate, translates it, do you also want to go away? But it, it's, uh, it's written in such a way that it's not, a, it's not like Jesus is um, down in the dumps. You know, everybody's, everybody's left. Do you also want to go away? Whimper, whimper. It's actually written in such a way to give the opportunity for, for the 12 to, to say, of course not. It's written in such a way it could be translated, surely you don't also want to go away, do you? When God grants faith, it becomes obvious that there is nowhere else to go but to Christ. That's what happens. Peter speaks on behalf of the 12 in verses 68, 69. Lord, to whom shall we go? You have the words of eternal life. There's that declaration of faith. And then he says, also, we have come to believe and to know. I think it's helpful to notice the order there. We've come to believe and to know. Knowledge comes from faith. Faith comes first, then knowledge. We have come to believe and know that you are the Christ the son of the living God. It may be that he spoke, uh, possibly Peter spoke with a sense of pride. Everyone else had left, but they had come to believe and to know that Jesus was the Messiah. We have come, he says. And it's almost as Jesus senses this as well and reminds them that even with them, he was the one that chose them. 
Notice that. So, so Peter says, we have come to believe. Jesus answers, did I not choose you? <laughs> yes, you have come to believe. Because I chose you. And, but then he says, and even in my choosing, you need to understand, and one of you is a devil. He spoke of Judas Iscariot, the son of Simon, for it was he who would betray him, being one of the twelve. Jesus had come to do the will of the Father, and that included choosing the one who would betray him. Now, imagine, if you will, for a moment, what would that have been like for Jesus? Spend that night in prayer, Matthew tells us, he spends the night in prayer, and then he comes down, and he, he chooses the 12, knowing full well that one of the 12 he was chewing, choosing was going to betray him to that kind of death. And then to serve with him in, in intimate surroundings for three years in ministry, knowing that he was pilfering the treasury box. And Jesus has him go with him the entire three years, knowing that Judas was the devil's tool, but appointed by God. Jesus knew this was the Father's will. It's a, this is a fulfillment of prophecies in the Psalms and elsewhere of one who, was, who walked with me, who was my friend, betrayed me. This is, we're told this in, in the book of Acts, elsewhere. And so we, Jesus knew this was the Father's will, and there's another practical learning piece here then for us, and that is to walk in the trials that the Lord brings upon us as we imitate Christ in this. This is what God has ordained. This is what God has brought. This is going to be hard. Maybe this is going to be long. Maybe I can't see any sense in this. Maybe if I could sit down and write out the order of events, I think I could figure out a better way to do this. But Jesus, knowing that this is what God had ordained, is going to walk through that trial, trusting God the Father for all that is going to be accomplished by the betrayal of Judas and the turning of Jesus, Judas over to the Jews. As we share in sufferings, as we are told by Paul that we share in the sufferings of Christ, as we share in sufferings, God displays the perfections of Jesus within us as we endeavor to live for him in this life, in the midst of sufferings, in the midst of trials. And so, chapter 6 looks like Jesus was a great failure when it comes to being a church growth expert. Chapter 7, Jesus holds a church growth movement seminar. Who's going to that, right? Church growth movements place our priorities on the flesh so often rather than on the sovereign work of the Spirit of God who cannot be whistled up, who cannot be scheduled. A.W. Pink, generation or more ago, wrote these words. He said, what is urgently needed today is not mesmeric experts who have made a study of how to produce a religious atmosphere, nor religious showmen to make people laugh one minute and weep the next, but faithful preaching of God's word with the saints on their faces before God, humbly praying that he may, he may be pleased to send his quickening spirit into their midst. That's the kind of preaching and praying and pleading with God that we need, that our generation needs. 
We need to have faith to see God's plan unfold. We live in a culture that continues to fall away from Jesus, finding his words intolerable. We just purchased land, a piece of property, in an area that you know many that you love are fleeing. They're going other places because this is a really bad place now. It's a very intolerant place now. It's very anti-Christian now. We talk about serving the community of Woodenville, and, and it has to go through your mind, but I hope they don't listen to any of Pastor Hatcher's sermons. <laughs> right? Or do we believe in the work of the Spirit in the preaching of the gospel? Do we believe in the work of the Spirit in the preaching of his offensive words to cut hearts and to grant faith? But we live in this culture where finding his words, that it's intolerable among, our, among these people. He can't be the only way. You can't say Jesus is the only way. He can't be really God and man. He could be a good teacher. You can't tell me that he was God. He couldn't have done those miracles. They were written into the book in order to try to, um, you know, in the ancient peoples, they would read the stories and they go, ooh, that's really cool. Jesus must have done miracles. But we're much smarter than they are now, aren't we? And in fact, the Bible can't even be trusted as authentic. Haven't you read? Haven't you seen? His demands are tyrannical, they are mean, and they are non-inclusive. And he won't give me the stuff that I want when I want it the way I want it. Christian churches are tempted to water down the teachings of our depravity, of God's sovereign election and salvation by grace alone, through faith alone, in Christ alone, because it turns people off. Chapter 6 looks like a plan gone awry, from thousands to just a handful. But, but what happened? What happened? From these 12, like Gideon's army, these few, these 12, these 11, filled with the Spirit at Pentecost, took this gospel to the world, turning it upside down. Throughout church history, the winnowing of those who were followers of Jesus, their bread God, has brought the apostasy of many, walking away from the faith. And in this winnowing over and over and over again among a faithful remnant, when you are among a faithful remnant, by grace through faith, don't pat yourself on the back, when you are among a faithful remnant, that, there, that, is, that is the time then to remember what God has done in the past and in faith pray for and watch him bring forth another reformation and another revival. In the meantime, Jesus asks you, in the midst of his offensive but true life-giving words, and in a moment where followers of Christ are disdained, mocked, persecuted, quieted, shunned, invited to leave, Jesus asks, surely you don't want to go away also, do you? By the Spirit of God, and only by the Spirit of God, we reply, Lord, where would we go? Where would I go? You have the words of eternal life. I have come to believe and know that you are the Christ, the Son of the living God. In the name of the Father and the Son and the Holy Spirit, amen. Gracious Father, grant faith here, the powerful gift that comes from you.